0: Jerry prayed this morning, he was saying something like, Lord, it's dreary and drizzly outside, but it's warm, bright, and sunny inside, and seeing you guys smile and just the warmth of Christian family is nice, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Of course, you know where you are, but I just want to say that, and just a few announcements for today. Please see Isaac for the True Church Conference. Raise your hand, Isaac, so everybody sees. He is the man who plans everything, and he is a good salesman. So if you're not sure if you want to go talk to him, or he'll direct you to somebody that's been there, and they can give you the -the behind-the-scenes information about the True Church Conference. Some other things to note, on Christmas Eve morning, we will have Sunday school in the morning service and that night we're going to have a a fantastic family time of evening candlelight communion and I encourage you to come back for that youth choir practice today and then on the 31st please respond to Catherine as soon as possible so we can plan for our catered meal on that day one last announcement we typically take a Christmas offering for Anchored in Truth missionaries. And you can designate on your check memo. You can write it on the $100 bill or whatever you put in the offering. Or if you give online because you're into the 20th century, you can put a memo note there.
1: really is for an object lesson, if you will, to remind us about Christ and this first advent. Our, our first reminder, we talked about Jesus Christ, of course, being the light of the world, and, and we thought about that in that respect. The second one, it was Christ as the Son of God. And today we have a special one, and you can join with us in it. In It's in your worship folder. You'll have a place to read as congregation as um, Cindy Imani come forward to share with us about this aspect of Jesus Christ which we should think about through the season and that is Christ as savior yes mm mm-hmm.
2: I light this candle to remind us of God's promise to send the one who is the Savior of mankind. God is holy and cannot look on sin, yet people walk in sin, each one living according to his own way. People had no way to remove their sin before holy God, and so they would have to suffer God's punishment. The prophets told of God's promise he would send the Savior who would suffer God's judgment in their place. He would save them from their sin. The prophet Isaiah said, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Who is this Savior? For today day in the name of, of David there, there has been, been born, born to you the Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the
1: Lord. Part of this reading comes from Isaiah 53. And I thought what I would do for you today as we think about Christ as the Savior is to think about this prophecy of this one who would come the Messiah, the Savior. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus Christ would come and be born and take on human flesh, he wrote this passage for us to think about and remember. And I thought I would read it for your reflection. You can sit quietly. If you want to turn there, you can, but maybe you might be just as well off to close your eyes and to think about this message given 700 years before Jesus was born and what the prophet Isaiah had to say and the significance of what it means in the reality of what has actually been fulfilled. We talked last week about God keeping His promise. This is one that He has certainly kept. And so let me just read it for your hearing and you can hear it as you please and then I'll pray for us as a congregation. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. What glorious, beautiful, and wonderful truth this is. In that dark and difficult day in which Christ came and walked among us and bore our sin on his body on the tree. In the anguish of his soul, he does so not for his guilt, but for ours. And Father, what a great gift you have granted to us this day. Indeed, this is Christmas for us every day. Christ with us, the hope of glory. The hope to be with you because our transgressions have been borne by Christ. I pray this Christmas season would not pass lightly as we bring to remembrance remembrance these great truths about what you have done. And what you have promised to do, clearly all our guilt has been borne by Jesus Christ. We are not guilty anymore. Not guilty, not because of our actions, but because of Christ's. Because the atonement that he has provided, that atonement to death, pouring out his soul to death, and yet he rose triumphantly from the grave, because he must, because in himself there was nothing to hold him there. What a beautiful picture, too, of Christ in his resurrection. And then beyond that, ascending on high, receiving the gifts to which he rightfully deserves. And beyond that, in the blessedness of his beautiful grace to bestow those gifts to us. What a great gift. I pray, Father, that that will continually be that which is resonant within all of our hearts to give you praise, honor, and glory. As we remember and reflect on this first Advent, may we recognize that even this time, Though Christ has ascended on high, yet he continues to make intercession for us even now, even this day. So we come before you and we confess our sin. And we know that you're faithful and you're just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because they've all been paid by the blood of Christ. And so we smile this Christmas season, reflecting on that great truth, (coughs) that great and glorious truth of who you are. I pray, Father, that we would praise your name, indeed, for sending Christ the Savior of the world. I pray in his name. Amen.
3: Good morning. Please take your hymn books and stand with me and turn to number 206. And we'll sing Silent Night, Holy Night. Luke 2.16 says, They found Mary and Joseph and the babe. Lying in a manger.
4: 206.
1: see Christ and the children would come to give him praise. Some tried to shoo them away, but Christ appreciated their praise. We're looking forward to some children that want to praise Christ today, and we want to praise Christ with you. I think we have Stella coming to present on the piano, and then we'll have the nuns family sing with a cameo appearance by Cyrus, so I'm glad to hear So let's hear the children give praise to Christ as we do as well.
3: you stella and the nun family What a blessing beautifully done and uh what a blessing to see a multi-generational family uh blessing us with song and with yes. instruments so praise the lord let's all stand together and turn our in our hymn books once again to 192 hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king 192 turn number 176 176 come thou long expected jesus born to set thy people free
5: Good morning, church. Good morning, brother. Our scripture reading today is taken from Luke one thirty-nine through fifty-six. That's page eight fifty-six in your pew Bibles. Again, that's Luke one thirty-nine through fifty-six, page eight fifty-six in your pew Bibles. This passage contains a song of praise by Mary, which quotes or alludes to a number of passages of scripture from Genesis through Habakkuk, spanning the law, Psalms, and the prophets, telling of God's promises fulfilled in the coming Messiah, the child Mary is to bear. As John MacArthur notes in his commentary, this is telling that her heart and mind were saturated with God's word. The song of praise is known as the Magnificat, which is the first word of the Latin translation. Let's read God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity to come together to worship you, Lord. We thank you for your word and your fulfilled promises. Lord, thank you for your promises yet to be fulfilled. Please bless our time together and bless this offering. Lord, may we honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. We ask these things in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
3: sacred handbooks once more and stand and turn to number 198. What child is this? Luke two seventeen and 18 said they reported the message they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed.
5: 198.
1: Blake Amber, Stella, nun family, and church. What a blessing it is to sing praises to the Lord. And a unique unique time of year in which we live to bring praises to him this particular season. I'm going through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. Hebrews is essentially a sermon that was preached. It's an exemplar of the first century sermon. I I think it was one by Paul, recorded by Luke. But nevertheless, (coughs) it functions as a sermon. Its theme is Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, I suppose that's our theme every Lord's Day, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we get to a more difficult section here, and it doesn't sound so Christmassy. I'm going to focus on verse 27 and speak about final judgment. I promise I'll have a little bit more Christmassy sermon for you (coughs) on Christmas Eve next week. And it'll be from the same... Range of texts that we look at today, and I'll challenge you to find what that might be because it's there. You'll see Christmas really in every text if you know Christ because it's ultimately all about Him. But this one seems a little dark and difficult. Verse 27 of chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9 27. It reads this way, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Doesn't sound all that joyful in our celebration of joy in Christ's advent in this season. Death is mentioned here. But because Jesus came and his purpose was to die For the sins of his people, we can have joy. We can have peace because of his love. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, is expressed towards Mary. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? Deliverer is what the name Jesus means. Christ is his title as Messiah. You'll call his name Jesus, Deliverer. What is he going to deliver from? He will save his people from their sins. That's the problem. It's the sin in which we possess by nature. It's the sin by which we act on in demonstrating in this life. It is that sin for whose wage is death. Jesus Christ has come to save his people from their sin. There is a definite appointment which we will all meet, an appointed time in which we face, and it is death. The certainty of it is genuine. Now, we've seen it, and we cover over it, understandably, because it isn't very pleasant to think about, but we experience it, all of us do, to some degree, at least vicariously through the loss of our loved ones which i hate it's not an enjoyable experience to have a loved one a friend a family member or even acquaintances die even those that you might read about on the news it, it isn't a pleasant thought but there is a certainty an appointment which we will all we all know and we will meet, we're mortal, we will meet death. But added to this text is to describe what then comes next, and that is judgment. We will all appear before the very judgment bar of God. That's what the text is pointing to. I'll read it in its context, and for the sake of time, I'll skip down to where we left off last time. He's talking about a covenant here in chapter 9, and as this is introduced, there, it seems to be a little bit confusing to some degree. He, he's talking about the covenant, we talked about last time, then, then a will that's aspect of that covenant. The will takes a place in the effect of, the, of a death. So now he's going to emphasize this whole dark aspect of, of death and blood, as you'll hear in the reading of God's Word. So let me go ahead and pick that up in verse 18, where he makes another point of conclusion. He made one in verse 15, note, therefore. Well, now we have one again in verse 18. This is a different thought a concluding another concluding thought preachers always say and in conclusion well that doesn't mean anything that just means he's going to give you another one coming up so i'm in good company here it's another therefore verse 18 therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood that's death For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he's given them a picture, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Verse 20, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. (coughs) And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once For all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. May you send the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts. For any that have not truly confessed Christ as Lord, may that confession come forth by the work of the power of your Spirit. And may we all truly, from the heart, confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. May we anticipate that second advent of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be prepared for the judgment to come. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) Now, I said our text today, our focus really will be verse 27. I wanted to give you a little bit of context for it. But let me give you a couple preliminary thoughts just about this particular verse. Notice it says death, it it says it is appointed once to die here. Once to die, obviously, is not said here in an absolute sense. But outside of a miracle, that is the norm for, and I don't know what the percentage would be, 99.9, Ninety-nine point nine, and you can put a lot of nines after that. That is the, the norm, and and that's how he is communicating. We're learning this morning in our uh, time of uh, tr- training time about hermeneutics, or the study of interpretation of scripture. That you have to understand the author's intent. He isn't trying to make an absolute point, and you already know that <coughs> in chapter eleven. In verse 5, when we get to that, he references Enoch. In 11.5 of Hebrews, he says he was taken up, that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. So this preacher knows about Enoch. So you don't have to say, well, why did you say once to die? Obviously, in context short of a miracle, this is what's going to happen. At the return of Christ, there will be uh, a translation, if you will, of those that are alive, for sure, and they won't see death in this way, as Enoch was translated as well. That is a unique and physical experience uh, that that is unique and a miraculous experience, should I say. But this is the norm, and that is death. Death here is is in the sense of a cessation of of this physical body. And let me make this very clear. It is not cessation of who you are. That is a person. That which is immaterial at death, there is a material change of existence. Your person, that part of you that is immaterial, the the real you, if, if you were paralyzed in bed, for example, and you couldn't move a muscle, you'd still be you, right? You may not be able to move about, and that would be difficult, but the you actually exists. Well, it will continue after this physical death, and I would say all aspects of the flesh, that is sinful humanity, both material and immaterial, will be Gone at what we think of as death. Or should Christ come and we're translated into a new body in his presence? A cessation of the flesh is might how you think of the idea of death. Paul would say this, and I'll I'll read it for you. If you want to turn, you can. <clears throat> we'll look at a lot of verses today, but at least I'll read it in your hearing. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians explains, Second Corinthians 5. He calls this earthly body that we have as, as a tent. And it, again, it points back to this tent, temporary, or tabernacle idea that we have in the book of Hebrews as well. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if the tent of our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this, in this tent we, we groan, Longing to put our heavenly on our heavenly dwelling, for if indeed by putting it on, we may be not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, that is the physical body, we are being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us, this is very thing, is God, and he has given us the spirit. As a guarantee, so we are always then of good cheer. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We're not in the fullness of His presence. Verse seven: For why? For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That—that's what He's talking about at death, and particularly for those that are in Christ. Atheists, cultists, and other groups have this idea of cessation of your personhood, that immaterial being. That is a heresy. It's called annihilation. They would affirm and try to communicate the idea that, well, when you die, that nothing else happens. You just go in the grave body rots, you no longer exist. Scripture is clear. There's a judgment to follow this death of your physical, mortal flesh. Roman Catholicism teaches an idea of a second chance, that you go to a temporary place that's not in Scripture. You won't find it anywhere in Scripture, but they come up with this idea of a secondary place called Purgatory. Purgatory is where people could pray for you and give to the church and do different things to kind of give you a second chance because you didn't do good enough in this life, so maybe others might give you some of their credit and their merit. That there's some sort of second chance after death. Well, Scripture doesn't say that. It says that you, you die and then judgment. It's that simple. Not die, wait a while for somebody to purify you, and then you can go to God's presence. Liberals have some sort of idea of afterlife, just depend on a lot of different ideas, but no idea of judgment. Well, except for the really extremely wicked people, maybe they'll get judgment, but most people won't. And I understand why these groups have come up with these ideas, because when you say then you're going to die once and then you're going to stand before God in eternal judgment, you're going to stand before his bar and be judged for eternity. That's a scary thing to think about. And particularly if you have loved ones that may have died and in this life didn't confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I get that and I understand it. It can be very difficult. I have siblings that have died, and personally, it 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 really um, it it bothers me to think about their condition. Uh, I was at the deathbed of one person one time, and God really uh, brought to mind, I guess, the idea that you know what Um, you may not know the condition of this particular person because at his deathbed, I did I held up a Bible and I preached the gospel to that person, and at that stage in his life. He wasn't able to audibly respond. I have no idea what what he heard or didn't hear. All I heard, actually, he did audibly respond. All he could do was grunt, and he grunted. I don't know what that actually meant. But I was comforted by the fact that it didn't matter, really. What mattered, ultimately, was that God was good to this person, even to his final day, that he would have somebody come to his deathbed and preach to him the gospel, somebody that had rejected the gospel Prior, but then to think about well, what if the person does reject the gospel and then they die? I can understand. Isn't at some point eternal judgment? Isn't there enough? I mean, I mean, we have sentences for a certain period of time. In most cases, I mean, to get a get a, a life sentence is really bad. But then to get a life sentence that lasts for eternity. That can be very hard to understand. And I get it. But I also get what God actually says. And so for that, I have to affirm what God says. It's, it's real simple. There's death and then judgment. There's no second chance. That judgment is eternal. Punishment doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the infection of the virus of sin, if you will. Sin must be killed. It must be destroyed. It must be eradicated. Punishment really isn't enough because it can't change the heart. And God will be glorified in the redemption of the sinner sinner, and in the punishment of the sinner when his divine justice is mediated. Those who are in rebellion against God now, who reject his mercy, his forgiveness that is graciously poured out in this time, they'll only find themselves further hardened throughout eternity. There isn't going to be a change of heart just because it hurts. The heart of man is desperately wicked, and who can know it? It's more desperate and wicked than you know. It is is this, this idea that really, if you reject the gospel, and that's why it's so crucial, as this preacher here has told us in Hebrews, on a number of times, he gives warnings. In fact, one of them is, you remember, he says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know why? Because if you listen to the gospel and you reject it now, what will happen is it'll be easier to reject in the future. So when we proclaim the gospel, we understand the the failure to receive it, that is to rebel against it, brings further condemnation. And that condemnation will only get increasingly worse in time. People aren't reformed in judgment. The only way reformation comes is through a change of heart. And God has promised to do that. God in His mercy has poured out a great blessing of grace and mercy and forgiveness. From the very beginning, God declared, if you remember in Genesis chapter 2, to Adam and Eve, he gave them the whole abundance of the garden, and he said, there's one thing you can't do, don't rebel against me, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you do so, on that day, you will what? Surely die. That's the consequence. That's the consequence of rebellion against God. That's what we call sin. That's what we say the wages are. The wages are what? What's the word? Death. That's what it is. That's what must happen. The devil comes forward in chapter 3 in Genesis, and he says, uh, you know, uh, did, did God really say that? And that's what he does, is calls you to influence you, if you will, to question, and then just to turn it, and say, no, God, God, God didn't really mean that, because in the day, you won't surely die, Genesis 3, 4. In fact, then impugning the very motives of God, why He has established whatever order He established, whatever rules, laws, and so forth, God has set all this in order for one thing, that is, to bring about human flourishing that, that's why they're there. All of the, the, the precepts that God has put in His Word isn't to create problems. It's to cre- create help. It is to bring about human flourishing. And yet, from the influence of Satan and our own desires here, he would say, oh, well, God did this. And here he, he's impugning the very motives of God. He did this because he knows in the day that you eat of this tree... Your eyes are going to be wide open and you're going to have an understanding or a a knowledge if you will of knowing good and evil. You're going to then be like God. You will be your own God. And that's the heart of rebellion against God. I will choose my own way. I will be the captain of my own ship. I'll direct my own way. You're going to sink. You're going to fail. You're not going to flourish. Because God does know good and evil, but he knows it in his intellectually, if you will, because God is omniscient. He doesn't know it experientially, and that's the problem. That's the half-truth that Satan always tells you. He doesn't tell you that, oh, yeah, what you're going to do when you know it, you're going to actually engage in it, and when you engage in it, it will destroy you. It's going to bring about what? Death. Ultimately death and a little dying all along the way. Satan's half-truth is a whole lie, then, really. You're going to commit experiences that warrant and put you in rebellion against God, and therefore warrants death. That's the consequence of sin. And to remind these Hebrews about that truth, which they knew, to remind us, which we know, yeah, we keep dabbling and playing in the cesspool of sin. God engaged in this ritual with the people that was awful and bloody. In our text, in verse 18, he brings that up, the preacher does, for their thinking. To just remind them about death. He's going to get to this 27, and as he does, he kind of eases up on it, and he reminds them how bad sin is. Because in our minds, we think, well, that's not bad. That looks like good fruit. No, it's corrupt. But it doesn't corrupt you till you take a bite of it. It tastes so sweet going down. But it is like a poison that will permeate your whole body and destroy you. So this is a whole ritual that he talks about here in verse 18 all the way to 21. If you're wondering, what what is he bringing all this up again? The first covenant, he says in Hebrews 9, 18, it it wasn't inaugurated without blood. And and then he goes on to describe this whole thing that looks awful. They're, they're, They're sprinkling blood on everybody and everything. To sprinkle this blood meant death. It isn't that they just cut and captured a little blood. They knew what the blood is. The blood was a sacrifice that was done. They took the blood from that, and they got pools of it because something innocent that wasn't responsible had to die. The blood of bulls and goats, as it's explained here. You can find this part of this ritual in Exodus 24. And I don't have time to detail this, but in Hebrews 9, uh, he, he will mention a lot of aspects that, and even some of them that aren't specifically recorded. You might have a harder time to find. I think what's happening is here is the foundation of it in Exodus 24, this ritual in establishing the first covenant. And then by practice, as they continued, they started sprinkling blood on everything. Now, imagine you come to service here and I got this bowl of blood here and I start throwing it on you. How are you going to feel about that? You say that's awful particularly if you're wearing your Sunday best, it's, it's going, to, what, it is going to ruin it, isn't it? Yeah, that's what sin does, see? It, it ruins everything. It's an awful mess. Nobody runs around throwing blood on everybody. This isn't a pagan ritual. This is something God instituted to remind them of the consequences of sin. It's absolutely awful. Here in Exodus 24, and I'll read it for you if you want to jump to it, you can, or otherwise mark it down and you can look at it later. He calls Moses to come up to the Lord with Aaron, the elders. Moses comes. The people are separated. They don't come near, verse 2. And then Moses came, verse 3, and he he tells the people all the words, what God had told him, and all the, note this, the, the, the rules. The commandments, But they're not to do. So now there's more than one. Okay? There's all kinds that God has revealed and disclosed. And what are the people? How do they respond? Verse 3. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's a good intent. We know their actions. We have the historical record. Moses writes down all the words. He rose up. Early in the morning, and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent the young men of people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to the oxen of the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood. Verse six. He put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Well, that's a mess. Well, then he takes the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they say again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses, verse 8, took the blood and he threw it on the people. And he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This ritual was a violent act. It was intended to be so. An innocent Substitute had to die. It had to be killed to provide this blood. It was a vivid reminder of what the consequences of disobedience to God is. God won't sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen like we do. And it's understandable because we don't really have a way to atone for that. God does. We just plead for mercy. His mercy is based on the blood of Christ. In fact, that's what he'll say in verse 22 of chapter 9. He says, under the law, then, almost everything was purified by blood. By everything, he means there are other sacrifices along the way. But essentially, he's giving the bigger picture of what went on. The whole thing was a bloody mess. It was awful. You can imagine bringing your children to something like that. And then you have to explain it. You'd have to communicate to them how awful sin is, is what you would have to do. And it's a somber thought. Because, he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why. Because God has already, already established that. that. That is his, his justice. That, that, that unholiness will not remain. Sin has to be atoned for. There is no injustice in God. If God forgave sin by just pretending it didn't happen without some sort of penalty, then that would make God a liar. And his accusers, those that might have felt the wrath and the injustice of sin, might accuse God for not being fair. You were not equal in your distribution of justice. Every sin, every sin will be atoned for by blood or death. Physical death in this life frees you from any further obligation that you might have within this life. Your loved ones may bear some sort of penalty if you've created problems in this life, but not you personally. There's nothing more that an earthly court Can do. But rest assured, there's existence after death in this mortal life, and there is a court that you will stand before, and the judge is Jesus Christ. And that's his point that there is judgment coming. And the one who has all authority is Jesus Christ. Now, I've gone through this, and um, this may sound very ominous to you and harsh, and indeed it is, but if you hang on, there is some hope, and you get an indication of that in verse 28 and following here, verse 28, that follows this verse 27, it talks about the salvation of those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in this context of judgment to come, and I know I've been harsh so far talking about how awful sin is because the preachers was harsh. All this death, all this blood. But I also want you to see the hope that's in the text and I'll try to unpack it a little bit with the time here, but much of this is going to be on you to draw you into this text here that in this judgment. I'll give you the I'll give you the End of the story. In this judgment, your sin will be paid for, either by the death of Christ, if you're in Him, and that's why judgment then will be an eager day, or you'll pay for it. And you should fear if you have to pay for it, because you, that will be a debt that will never be Resolved and hence eternal. And the life that is granted in Christ is eternal life. Those are two sides of that judgment coin. I've already kind of indicated, and I think our thoughts first, at least mine do, when we th- hear this phrase, is pointed out, a man wants to die after that comes the judgment, <clears throat> we think about the judgment for our damnation. Retribution, if you will, and that's a good way to think about it. That's right. You'll you get the retribution or the requital, reward for what you do in life. Turn to Revelation 20, and I'll just give you a picture of that judgment that's in view. All who have not repented of their sin... Confess Jesus Christ as Lord, they will stand after death in front of him in judgment. Even those who think that they're pretty good, morally good. Even those who think, well, my good is going to outweigh my bad, and that way I'm going to pass my examination. You're gravely mistaken, condition that we all enter in the world is condemned already. All that needs to occur, the judgment, is just this final sentencing. That's what the judgment is about. It is about an eternal sentencing. All of us are guilty as we come into the world, condemned already, and just waiting for this final sentencing. That's the idea here the sentence of eternal wrath in Revelation chapter 20 and pick up at verse 11. John sees the end of the age, and he sees then a great white throne. We call this then the white, great white throne judgment. That's where we get the terminology there. So I saw this great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. By the way, it's Christ who's seated on it just in context. You could read it there. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's two books in this imagery. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead and those who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown then into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, that's the positive end. He was thrown into the lake of fire. So you have two books, two ways of judgment there. One, what you did, and then one, what Christ has done for you. That's the book of life. Name's not there positively. All they have is negative. That's their whole life. This idea of thrones, I won't get into it because of time, but this is a common theme within the book of Revelation. And in particular, this throne imagery here is a throne in which... Christ is enthroned. Remember in Hebrews as it begins, he's seated what? At the right hand of the majesty on high. What's the right hand? It's the the seat of power. That's what it's alluding to and throughout the book of Revelation and from the gospels where Jesus Christ has said himself, all authority has been given to me. He is the one who is the judge. You will stand before Jesus Christ. In fact, you can, and I'll just highlight it for you, Due to time from Revelation chapter 6. Here's a question of those who have rejected and, and rebelled in Christ, as chapter 5 indicates, from chapter 6, as another judgment is released on the earth. The response of the people on the earth is this in verse 16 of Revelation 6. I'll read it for you. Calling to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For in that great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? You're not going to stand before Jesus Christ in your own self-righteousness because he's got the books. The books are open. The books point to the very omniscience of God. I don't remember stuff, so I write it down in a book. I can look it up. And God remembers everything because He's a God. He is God. So that's the imagery of the books here. I mean, we, we know about computers and how it keeps data. And and people come up with more intriguing ways to destroy that data. And others then find more intriguing ways to find that data (laughs) and come back to haunt you. Well, God knows everything. And you stand before Him. There's no bleach bit that can take away the memory of that. There's only the blood of Christ. And for those that have their sins atoned for by Christ, that, that, that book that records all of those evil deeds, and I would not want to see that book for me or anybody. I, I know what I've done, but how about what I thought? How about what I was supposed to do and didn't do? All of that. They all charge against you. And, and when, when God would look at it through the blood of Christ, it covers all of it. That's the imagery there. Judge, it says, according to what they have done, Revelation 20, 13. All your thoughts, all your words, all your actions, all your inactions. And what's the result? Death, verse 14, and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Remember, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. this is part of the judgment. The second death refers to this in, e- eternal state. This is why we say the consciousness of the damned. They, they, they don't lose consciousness. This continues on. They're thrown in here. This death in Hades gives the imagery of our, our death and, and, and really the, the temporal place of judgment that is finally adjudicated by Christ the judge. And a final sentence is established. Jesus Christ is sovereign over death and judgment. And by the way, it's only Jesus Christ. This is why we preach Christ alone. It isn't good enough for you to have your own little religious system. It isn't going to work. And you can't imagine Christ in the differently than he actually is. And if you want to find out who he is, read the scriptures. He's sovereign over all. In context here it's it's talking about the those people then, on a positive side, not only negative here they do these works and very very much deserve eternal judgment, but on the positive side here, in verse fifteen, notice that their name wasn't found in the in the book of life, so it'd all be considered and looked at. The book of life is. Imagery of that which God established from the very beginning to choose those who will be in Christ Jesus and live. Well, I'm done with the difficult and dark part of judgment. I said at the beginning, there's another aspect of judgment. And if you're outside of Christ, I hope you're scared to death. (laughs) Actually, I hope you're scared to life to Christ. But for those that are in Christ, then this judgment will mean the most blessed thing you could ever imagine. Because for the believer, and I think both are intended here, because in context as I read, not there's people that are also eagerly waiting. Who would eagerly wait for eternal damnation? No one. But those who are eagerly waiting are those that are in Christ because their judgment is not going to be examined by what you have done. It's going to be examined what Christ has done. And he's got a pretty good record. The judgment for a Christian is what we will call the judgment seat of Christ. It is a judgment of rewards only. Because all the retribution has been taken care of. All that bloody mess that was due has been accomplished and atoned for by Jesus Christ. So if you're in Jesus Christ, even, even death becomes a blessed thing in some sense. Bittersweet, I understand, to lose loved ones and so forth. But to stand in the very presence of Christ, and guess what you're going to get? An eternal inheritance of reward. I touched on this concept a little bit last week, but I want to develop it further. And I'll just note here, <clears throat> we're going to look at 2 Corinthians in a minute because there's a further explanation of it. But in 9.15, he's already kind of indicated that in Hebrews. Did you Before you jump over to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, look back to verse 15. And talking about Jesus Christ, he's a mediator of what, this new covenant. So Christ, is our mediator, and, and what is this new covenant about? We've already described that from chapter 8. So that those that are called may, notice this, receive, and, and that's, that's the word to underline, receive the promised eternal inheritance. Okay? That, that's, that's the reward that I'm talking about. The promised eternal inheritance. Because that death, that is the death of Christ that is required, it's already occurred. And it, and that death, notice, and here's the second word to compare received to, it then redeems them from the transgressions committed under the at first covenant, or you could say the law, the law that we're all disobedient to, the law that condemns us. So, so there's two aspects here in that in, in Christ, he's already talked about you're going to positively receive his promises and he has redeemed you from the consequences of your disobedience. Both aspects are true of those who are believers, who are in Christ, both redemption and reward. Now, Second Corinthians 5, note the text here down to, we'll jump down to verse 8. Paul here is showing what death is like then for the believer. The material is gone, that which is immaterial remains. That and I would add, that which is considered of the flesh in an immaterial way bad thoughts might think of it that way those are gone too. And so Paul then tells his church at Corinth, "Then you should be of great courage. You should be really joyful. Why? Because we we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That that is the prospect then of the believer. Whatever you enjoy, whatever you like, and I know it's familiar. So we're not we don't have this death wish. None of us do. But in in the end, no matter what goes on, you have great courage because this is all that's going to happen is something that is better. So whether we're at home, verse 9, or away, we make it our aim to please him. So this then changes the whole perspective in your life. How do you live your life? Please him means to obey him. This is the intent of our heart. I want to be obedient to God. I want to do this. Do you see how this connects to judgment then in verse 27 of Hebrews 9? Death and judgment. Judgment. He'll talk about judgment right here. Do you see it in verse 10? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? So unbelievers are going to appear before Christ. We call it the great white throne judgment in which they'll receive what? Condemnation. Eternal. But those that are in Christ, they're going to also stand before the judgment bar of Christ. And what are they going to get? So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. The the all in view here, we must all appear, are those who are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. That's the context, right? It's believers. This is a judgment for believers. This is not retribution or punishment, all of which Christ has already paid he's already died so there's no condemnation for the believer so so why go before a judgment seat of christ and here the grammar actually helps a little bit because the and it it doesn't always mean this but it does i would say both the context and the grammar helps this particular word for judgment is the word bima maybe you've heard it before it's a word that is is often associated with that platform that was used in the Olympic Games when the athletes finished their challenge whatever they were doing their athletic event when they're done what do they get rewards this judgment is a picture of receiving Rewards. It's not a technical word that means that, but that's in context is what it's used for, and it does actually mean that. Most of us could only imagine what it would be like to be an Olympic athlete receiving a gold medal and standing on that platform. But I imagine that's a pretty awesome experience. Many of them drape themselves in the colors of their flag. They'll hear their own anthem play. It's, it's a feeling that we can enjoy vicariously as we, we root on our fellow athletes, isn't it? We, we root them on and encourage them. And it's almost as if we're, we're swimming with Michael Phelps or Katie Ledecky, right? You, just, you ever see any of that that you have an interest in and you, and you just cheer them on? Because you know, at the end, and when they, they, they touch the wall, they're going to pull, get out of that pool and they're going to be beaten over the head with a stick. No? They're going to get a gold medal around the neck. That's how we do it. And praises. I think, by the way, that's the imagery following this chapter 11 of faith that helps explain chapter 12, how it opens. I'll just read it for you, and you're hearing. You remember it? Most of you do. Therefore, after the chapter of faith, for those that are in Christ, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, cheering on others who have gone on before in the faith and those that are in faith now that are part of the, the community of Christ, let us then lay aside every weight and the sin which so clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He, he, he paid it all. And right now he's seated at the throne of God. So indulge me a little bit. You get the imagery here? all of heaven cheering you on even now as you endure through this life to set away that which defiles to sin to 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 endure and to run and and as you do hear their cheers if you've ever been in an athletic event that that uh, people participated along the side of it and they're all cheering you on and encouraging you there is some motivation to do that and to keep persevering, and ultimately, you see that final goal. I've got to get to there. Well, guess who is right there? It is Jesus Christ, said, come! That's motivation. Come, and what are you going to get? You're going to get the, this is a promised eternal inheritance, this reward in Christ. No wonder everything else really ultimately doesn't matter. I'm not saying don't be a good steward of what you have in this life, and do, but keep the right perspective along the way. We must appear before Christ. We make our aim then to please Him. And there will be some things in our life as we stand before Him that are both good and bad, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 talks about. But you know the evil, the bad, the not good, whatever that might be, all of that has been atoned for by Christ. He's the one that endured the cross. He's the one that it bore your otherwise shame that you should have. You feel shameful sometimes when you sin? I know I do. Why did do that? Christ bore that. So as you, you, you look to him, you recognize that this is not a judgment for your shame. It isn't a judgment for your death. It isn't a judgment for your evil, good or bad. Though good or bad, and here with time remains, I invite you to jump back to 1 Corinthians 3 just so that you'll see it. The good or bad that he's talking about is those things which endure and those things which do not endure. That's the point. It isn't that you're going to be judged on the basis of good or bad. It's, the, it's those things that are evil and bad have already been judged by Christ and they won't remain. But what's going to remain? Those things that are good to which are produced by the Holy Spirit in your life. Those things that are bad have no eternal value. They'll be done away with. And his motivation to to diminish those things of no eternal value, including the practices which we might engage in that aren't good. They're not going to stand and they won't be rewarded. Notice here the, the judgment seat in 1 Corinthians 3 5. Paul will say, Well, who are we? We're just servants of God. God assigned us to this task. They were elevating Paul and Apollos here and causing divisions in the church. And he just says, you know, I just planted Apollos water, but you know, it's God who gives the growth. And, and that's all I do is preach Christ. It isn't me. It's, it's Christ. God will will give the spiritual growth. So in the end, those that plant, those that water, well, they're not really anything, but it's God ultimately. And, but in your work as you, as you engage in those things which God has ordained you to do in, in life, good works, if you will, you're going to get a, a reward. Each will receive wages according to his labors. And then he says, we're all in this together. That's the fellow workers in verse 9. <clears throat> and then he goes on to explain using the analogy of a field and then a building according to God's grace. Paul lays this foundation here, and, uh, or Christ lays the foundation, should have said, and he builds on it, verse 11. Now drop down to verse 12. Using the building analogy in the gifts that God has provided and in the way he has orchestrated and ordained, he's using this analogy, verse 12, he says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, that is the Christ, with gold and silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each, and, and these are different categories of items, as you could see. Each one's work will then become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive, and here it is, reward. If anyone's work is bor- burned up, he will suffer loss. Loss of what? of the time you invested in something worthless, that's what you lose, in the time that you could have invested in something of eternal value, but he's going to be saved, even through the fire. Why? Because Christ has already paid for that which is bad, that which is evil, that which is of no value. Christ has atoned for it. So you throw all these objects in the basket, throw it in the fire and what's going to come out? Gold, silver and precious stones. That's what's going to come out. What's going to come out is this reward. By the way, you are saved by grace through faith in Christ but not saved to just get a ticket to heaven, God saved somebody to change their very heart and it's on display here in this life. He says in Ephesians 2.10, He has created us unto good works. He's created that, that. That would be characteristic of our life. Those gifts remain. Those are produced by the Holy Spirit and they're evidence of the redemption that we have in Christ and you will be re- rewarded. Scripture talks a lot about rewards, and one of the imagery is a crown. Understandable, it's an athletic presentation. Remember the Bema seat? They wouldn't have got a medal, they would have got a crown instead. Talks about an imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians 9, the crown of rejoicing, in 1 Thessalonians 2, the crown of righteousness in Second Timothy 4, the crown of glory, 1 Peter 4, and the crown of life in Revelation 2. These rewards in the book of Revelation it will tell us to then fight and hang on to what we have that no one would seize your crown in other words you wouldn't lose it it's it's motivational to engage in and and what what are these rewards what are these crowns I don't know precisely but I would explain it the best way in this way it is your capacity to um, to praise And enjoy that eternal inheritance. It brings glory to God. Look what that sinner is doing. He's doing something contrary to his sinful nature. He's actually forgiving somebody. Could you imagine that? He, He is not giving someone retribution for what they did. He's giving them mercy instead. Grace, mercy, love, patience, peace, kindness. Even self-control, he's not out of control. These glorify God, and an imagery here is in Revelation chapter 4, and I'll read it for you. It's an image of heaven as John looks upward from chapter 3. He looks into heaven, and he sees those that would represent the church, the 24 elders Who fall down before him who is seated on the throne. That's Christ. And they worship him who lives forever. And what do they do? They cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I would say these image an increased capacity to enjoy our eternal Inheritance. I'll tell you two more things from the book of Revelation and I really mean I'm going to conclude, <laughs> maybe. It is appointed unto man once to die. We know that. And that reality should bring about the idea of judgment to come. And for those out of Christ, you wouldn't want that judgment. And it's eternal. And so it's a motivation to preach the gospel, and warn people of the wrath to come. It should be. But in addition, it should be for those that have received Christ, who have repented and believed on him, to think joyously of him. And John puts it this way in the book of Revelation. I'll just read it for you in your hearing, and then I'll pray. From Revelation twenty-two twelve, Christ says to his church this, Behold, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, and I hope that's you, are those who have washed their robes so that they may receive the right to the tree of life. Remember the garden, tree of life? Yeah, that's the imagery. And they may enter the city by the gates. You go in through Christ outside, that's that other group, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Final call. The spirit and bride say come. Let the one who hears say come. Come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let everyone who desires the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray for the, each of us that we may see the awfulness of sin and its consequences, but also the awesome reward that is granted to us in Christ and may we be of great courage to proclaim the truth and live a life that exalts in your name. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment to think on these words. Take a moment now. Respond to Christ the way he's spoken to you. Father, we come to you and praise you for your holy name. Praise you for sending the Son to truly pay it all. And thus, we owe all to you. I pray, Father, that the gospel will go forth in great ways this day. Redeem many. Draw many sons and daughters to praise your name. To enjoy the good gifts that you have given, not only in this life, but the, the reward of life eternal. With you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus did pay, pay it all and because of that we can sing praise to him. I think that's the hymn you have all um I don't remember the word all loud and glory. What's the number? 222. 222 that might be easier to say. Let's stand and worship Christ together as Jerry comes to lead us.
0: 222, all
4: glory, Lord, and honor.
3: Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Indeed, Father, we give you praise and honor and glory for these. In Jesus' name, Amen.